Welcome to Season 2 of Ing Podcast, a production of Menno Media's Leader Magazine. What does it mean to authentically follow Jesus? Each week, Ing Podcast invites you to join us on a journey. Join us as we talk with people of faith who are creatively thinking, growing, and being. People who are reimagining and exploring what it means to enrich faith in a complex world. In a lot of places around the country, the police uh, are a huge line item in the budget. And at the same time, um, that line item has grown. Over the years, we've seen uh, pretty systematic cuts uh, from the different programs and services uh, that communities actually really want and need. Instead of just responding to harm in our community, what does it mean to prevent harm ahead of time? How do we come up with solutions for um, addressing harm that don't require or involve the coercion of the state? Our conversation begins now. Join us as we journey together. Welcome back to Ing Podcast, and I'm really excited today to be joined by a small group of folks, uh, more than one guest this time on Ing Podcast. I'm here with a few of the people who were part of putting together a new resource published recently by Mennonite Church USA, which is titled Defund the Police, an Abolition Curriculum. I'm joined by three individuals, Chris Henderson, Melissa Flora Bixler, and Ben Tapper, who were part of a larger team in putting this project together. I want to say to start, thank you so much to the three of you for being a part of today's episode and for sharing how you made this project come to life. I'm wondering if we might start by having you introduce yourselves for people who don't know you. I'm Melissa Florbixler, uh, the pastor of Raleigh Mennonite Church in North Carolina, and I uh, got into the curriculum work when Glenn Guyton and Sue Parker reached out to me to see if um, I knew of people who'd be interested in putting this resource together, and um, I worked with them to help uh, assemble a team to write the curriculum. I'm Ben Tapper. Uh, I work for a religious or faith-based nonprofit uh, in Indiana and uh, fairly new to abolition work myself. I got pulled into this project because early on, I think once Melissa um, was asked to do it by Glenn, she was thinking about other folks, other voices that uh, might be able to participate um, and make it a bit fuller and more rich. And so she tapped me. Uh, she knew I'd been kind of um, leaning into this work and she wanted to see if I would join the team in essence. And I'm Chris Henderson, the executive director of Amistad Law Project based in Philly. And um, I got looped into the curriculum through uh, Chantel, who uh, knows Melissa and knows Ben. Awesome. Well, thank you again to all three of you for being a part of this conversation here today. Um, I think before we get too far into this conversation, it would be really healthy to learn just a little bit about the police abolition movement. For those who have not been paying much attention to the the political movement to replace policing systems with other systems of public safety, um, could one of you give sort of a background of how we got to this point? Um, where does this movement come from and its origin story and um, just as a starting point? In a lot of places around the country, the police uh, are a huge line item in the budget. 
And at the same time, um, that line item has grown. Over the years, we've seen uh, pretty systematic cuts uh, from the different programs and services uh, that communities actually really want and need. Places like Minneapolis, like Philadelphia, like New York City. Um, and so amazingly, uh, in Minneapolis, there's actually been years and years of work that people have been doing um, to try and defund the police and get uh, more funding for these sorts of community things that that actually make our, our communities better and safer. Mm. So after the murder of George Floyd, um, this, this demand to defund the police was one that was then just amplified, uh, but it actually had been um, in the streets and like in that community, especially for, for years. Um, and then, you know, and people heard it um, as there were hundreds of thousands, millions of people marching around the country. It really resonated um, because it was like, yeah, why are we spending, um, you know, across the country billions of dollars on policing when there are so many things uh, that our communities need and just can't afford. Black communities, uh, queer communities, people who haven't been able to access the the police because of their occupation or their uh, citizenship status have been asking these questions for decades, centuries. And uh, so even though this is a conversation that's entering more of the of the mainstreams or public um, dialogue right now. Um, we really wanted to highlight that this is this is actually uh, more like the mainstream culture is, be, is is coming to grapple with a with a movement that has that has existed long before it ended up in you know in the New York Times or the Washington Post. And so uh, really wanting to honor the roots of this movement. Um, people like Angela Davis and others who have who have really been the some of the pioneering voices in in this movement. I wonder if you might address that thing that I'm guessing probably comes up for all three of you as you do this kind of work from people who've never experienced a problem with the police saying why do we need to uh, abolish the police. I was one of the white people um, on this curriculum writing team and and when I re- reflect on this question for myself I I think about how few times I've actually interacted with the police um, in my lifetime. Mm. Um, and, you know, this is something that we hear from from in abolition circles, that that the reason why my communities have not interacted with the police is because we have well-funded schools and mm-hmm. we have uh, <laughs> we have all of the resources that we need. We have grocery stores in our backyards and uh, we have these we have all of the the things that um make uh that that we're talking about need to be funded and communities that are um over policed and under resourced in all yeah. of these other ways so actually i i actually just want for my black and brown neighbors what i have right now which is um not a lot of interaction with the police because um we've we've created a life of abundance for white people mm. um mm-hmm. and instead of that being something that's sort of kept to my community as a sort of um 
uh, scarcity of resources, we actually have all the money that we need to do this um, for for everybody if we are willing to um, shift around the way our spending priorities right now instead of just responding to um, responding to harm in our community, what does it mean to prevent harm ahead of time? Mm-hmm. How do we come up with solutions for um, addressing harm that don't in, require in or involve the coercion of the state? Mm, yeah. And I think, I mean, you know, it's, it's difficult to articulate why someone should care about something um, if they haven't experienced it um, because it, it requires an understanding of the interconnectedness of people and of life. Um, and then for me, that's what it, one of the, one of the foundational elements that it comes back to that this question kind of continually invites me to land on. It's the ways in which we are all connected. Um, and I personally have a, a deep, um, conviction that if I see something wrong happening, if I see a violation of, of health and safety taking place, then I am compelled to do something. I'm compelled to act, to say something, to speak out. Um, because, because pain anywhere, anyone experiencing pain, anyone experiencing suffering has to have some sort of like cosmic effect on all of us or some sort of spiritual effect on all of us. If nothing else, it leaves its mark, uh, on our kind of societal memory. And, and that memory doesn't get erased no matter how hard we try. And that pain doesn't get erased no matter how hard we try. And so from the perspective of, Uh, like the neurological effects of trauma, we know that when you have um, traumatic interactions and experiences, that those can get passed down from generation to generation. And they they affect and impact and influence the ways in which you interact with other people, you interact with your family, your community, they sever relationships. And and if if left unchecked and untreated, that severing can take place generation after generation. Um, And and that severing ends up having a, a crippling effect on entire communities and eventually on entire societies. And so it's th- there are ways in which we are all connected that maybe we're not aware of or that maybe we don't want to be aware of and don't want to pay attention to. But at some point, I think we have to open our eyes and acknowledge that one person's suffering affects us whether we want to pretend it does or doesn't. Um, mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. even if somehow we could say that it didn't affect us, I think we have a moral obligation, a spiritual obligation, an obligation as a another being that that moves and breathes and is alive to look after our, our, our family, our friends, people that are near us, just a general obligation of care and an ethic of love that we have to take seriously. Yeah. It strikes me that there, there's gotta be some kind of American individualism, um, in what you're saying too, right? Like, uh, if, if we don't see ourselves as part of a collective, um, if we believe in the sort of, uh, myth that, our success is only because we pick ourselves up by our bootstraps. Um, then we don't really think need to think critically about community systems, right? We just we just say we are we are fine in our own space, and um, and that's the end of the conversation, right? But it overlooks so much then, um, uh, so much of the framework of the way that we move through the world, so much of of even how uh, I think these faith traditions that we belong to would say um, we are interconnected. Um, And I think, but I think it does require us to step away from some of the cultural assumptions that, that we are only looking out for ourselves uh, in order to start to get to that point that you're talking about. 
I'd also add briefly that it's not just this uh, American individualism that I think is is definitely taking place, but I think there's also a um, mindset, spirituality, whatever whatever you want to call it, of lack that takes place, mm. um, wherein we believe that if um, if we remove this this uh, safety mechanism that that protects uh, our resources, that protects our communities, that keeps us insulated, uh, i.e., the police, then what might happen to us? What might be? What might we lose? There there isn't enough abundance for all of us to have all that we need. And I think yeah. that's a fundamental lie that the defund movement, the abolition movements push back on that no there is enough abundance we have what we need within each of us we have the wisdom we need within our communities to create true systems of safety but what we have now isn't actually keeping people safe i love that Today's episode is brought to you in part by two graduate programs at Eastern Mennonite University. The Center for Justice and Peacebuilding and Eastern Mennonite Seminary offer graduate degrees, certificates, and other professional development opportunities. Join us to expand your skills, challenge your mind, and feed your spirit. Eastern Mennonite Seminary is grounded in the Anabaptist values of community, service, sustainability, peacebuilding, and discipleship. We invite you to participate in God's movement and discern together how to lead communities to embody Christ in the world. At the Center for Justice and Peacebuilding, you will learn with people working towards a more just and less violent world. You will become adept at interrogating systems, understanding the causes of violence and injustice, and responding to them. Learn more about how we can be a part of your journey by visiting emu.edu ing. Subscribe to Peacemail, Mennonite Church USA's weekly digital news magazine, and the only source for all of the denomination's news, blogs, upcoming events, and resources. Subscribe today at MennoniteUSA.org slash Peacemail. That's P-E-A-C-E-M-A-I-L, MennoniteUSA.org slash Peacemail. You know, building off of what both Ben and Melissa have said, um, you know, there, there's like this narrative around police, around policing, um, that, that that's what keeps us safe. Uh, yeah. You know, but we know from the, from the history of how police started, um, that that's really not the, the origins of police. Um, you know, whether it's in the, in the North where police were created, um, to, to suppress labor movements um, and, and unionizing efforts, and then in the South uh, to try and re-enslave people who, uh, who had escaped. Um, and we know that this actually is not a system that was made to, to protect people. Yeah. Um, and if we're thinking about what it, what it even would mean to have a system that would protect people, uh, I don't think that this is where we would start. And, you know, when we're looking at police, who they kill, who they harm, um, the communities uh, and individuals, um, you know, it's, it is disproportionately certain people, mm-hmm. um, black and brown people, people who are living in concentrated poverty, um, and especially people with, with uh, people who have or are perceived to have um, some sort of 
mental illness. And so it's like, do, do we actually want to be safe? Do we actually want to keep all of our community safe? Um, because then I think that we can envision and create a world in which um, there are other things like, like Melissa's talking about, where all of our communities have uh, the resources that we need. Um, you know, we know that the communities that are safest are not the ones with the most police, um, but the ones with the most resources. Thank you, um, uh, Chris and Melissa, for, for pointing us back to uh, this is not a recent thing. This is this is a part of a long history of uh, of oppression, um, misuse of power, and uh, and it, it really does take a different uh, tone um, when you think about community policing, when you think about its origin story and and how it came to be, um, especially in light of sort of the 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 privilege holding on to power um, in. In so many ways and, and carries through to today. So we, we can talk probably for this whole episode on why this curriculum is important, but um, I'm curious how you began to uh, put something like this together specifically for faith communities to use. Um, I see when, when I visit the website that there is a, a nine-week curriculum, um, each of them featuring different uh, themes, as Ben already referenced, but um, walking us through these various areas. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the intentionality of how this curriculum was structured and set up? One of the places we wanted to start was grounded in that, that what we heard Chris bring up is this question about what does it mean to be safe? And, and Chantel really brought that to the fore for us, that that was in a, that was a significant question and place for us to 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 let people or have a place of imagination to begin and and to connect their own experiences to to what is at the heart of this of this movement um, i think that a lot of the misperception is that we don't really want any, you know, that there's no accountability or, you know, people just do whatever they want to do. Uh, yeah. Whereas the sort of the goal of this curriculum is, is to shift that towards this question of what does it really mean to be safe? And, and what are perceptions of safety or, t- or what makes people safe? Some per- certain parts of our community, the white community safe, oftentimes at the expense of the black community, um, again, through under-resourcing. And so giving people a chance to say, this is a, this is a, a common uh, or universal sort of th- thing that we need. We all need to be mm. safe. Um, mm-hmm. And so let's talk together about what it would mean to make our communities, all of our communities safer. Uh, for those of you who already feel like you enjoy safety in a variety of ways, what, what does it mean to extend that safety to others? For those who feel unsafe uh, because of police or because of um, under-resourcing your communities, what does it mean to, uh, to be a part of a, a movement of liberation from, from being unsafe? And, and so, so I, I, that was one piece I appreciated that Chantel really lifted up was, was grounding us in that question of safety. We really started with like having conversations with each other um, and sort of talking about what the intention was from MCUSA and also um, what each of us thought was really important to, to ground in this process. 
um, and what we ultimately hoped uh, people who went through the curriculum would actually get out of it and like what they would be able to, to move forward in, in the world and in this work um, afterwards. I think it's important to point out the structure of this curriculum. It, it is pretty intensely interactive. Um, most of the weeks have a, a multimedia component, things to watch as a group walking through this curriculum, and then uh, pretty, I think, healthy guiding questions um, grounded in scripture, activities to spark that dialogue and that discourse, and and then a sort of next step section at the end of each one um, to consider where we go from here as you move through the curriculum. Um, I'm curious, was it a group effort where you all sat down and sort of together authored the structure here? Did you each have different avenues where it was your job to say, plan the next steps or your job to pick out the multimedia pieces or how did, how did it go working on something? So this grand as a team, I remember us uh, divvying up the sections and, and kind of deciding who wanted to take ownership, you know, over, over which weeks. And, and even within that, you know, there were multiple people working on uh, each section, you know, so um, I may have worked on week six or seven, but that doesn't mean that Melissa didn't come in later and help or Chantel didn't come in later and add a piece here, add a piece yeah. there. But, you know, originally we kind of just divided the weeks up uh, amongst the team. And then um, as we went along, kind of kept checking in with each other to see who needed uh, assistance, who wanted assistance, uh, to see what needed to kind of be touched up and tweaked. Um, and there were just continued conversations about where we needed to add video pieces, where we needed to tighten things up, if we wanted to remove entire sections completely. So the conversation was just pretty much ongoing, even after most of the curriculum itself was written. Since the curriculum has come out, I'm curious, how uh, have you heard feedback and what has the feedback been like from, from the spaces that you find yourselves? We're sensing that it's been over overall positive. And I do think that there is a sense of recognition of what it means to maybe be very public about your opposition to, to the curriculum. Um, I, I think because, you know, I, it's hard to even see it, but the, you know, the, in the, the title is actually abolish the police question mark, um, which is meant to be sort of like, Oh, we recognize that that, you know, people want to understand this movement and maybe don't. And this is a, yeah, a yeah. majority white denomination um, that has questions. And this is this really is a movement among ab among black communities and something that we um, need to understand and grapple with. And um, and that we think that as writers of this curriculum, this is the direction that's important for us to go. Um, and there are small steps along the way that are all sort of gathered together that eventually lead to abolition. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think that there, it, my guess is we're not hearing as much pushback because um, maybe it just, it, it looks bad to be like, you shouldn't even learn about this. Um, but if, mm -hmm. I've certainly mm -hmm. heard um, sort of from that there are certain pockets of, of people in the Mennonite church who are upset about it, who feel like this is just another sign of the liberalization of the denomination. Yeah, um, yeah the, that kind of language. But I like that, like providing some space for 
the curriculum to be challenged too, hopefully does make it more accessible and something that anyone, regardless of where they fall uh, in a political spectrum, can engage. Um, And I think even it's important for us to acknowledge too that even among the uh, abolition movement, there's a spectrum of of what it means for people too, right? Like I've I've heard people say um, who are a part of this movement, and we don't actually mean elimination of the police. And others say, no, 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 we're actually working to eliminate police, right? <laughs> and so there is that sort of um, spectrum of of possibility even within the movement. So I think the invitation to to have a spectrum of people wrestling with this. Uh, is very appropriate and hopefully uh, means more congregations w- are willing to uh, engage it. Only heard positive feedback on the curriculum. I, I think sort of speaking to the last thing you said though, uh, about defund and not everybody being an abolitionist, um, is that de- defunding the police is an abolitionist demand, hmm. um, yeah. but not everybody who wants to defund the police is an abolitionist. Um, and, and, abolitionist demands are ones that like fundamentally are, are trying to shift power dynamics. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, taking away the resources from police, um, trying to take away their jobs, um, is, is about reducing their power. Mm. Um, but it's why things like, you know, uh, community oversight boards, um, and body cameras are not uh, abolitionist demands, but are ones that are, are reformist um, because they often um, actually just further entrench the power of police um, by by legitimizing them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think lots of people across um, all different sorts of uh, of political framings can see that this shouldn't be the thing that we spend more money on than anything else. The thing I think I want to say is just a thought that I've been mulling over returning to this idea of um, landing on legality as the end-all be-all for Mm. a justification for an action. Yeah. Um, And and for me, it's it's this idea that legality does not equate to morality just because something is legal, especially in the United States. Yeah. Uh, yeah. that does not make it, uh, justifiable. It does not make it moral, does not make it an ethical thing to do or to have done. And so, you know, throughout the history of this country, there have been folks that have appealed to something beyond the letter of the law, uh, trying to call us into a broader understanding of what it means to take care of one another and what it means to create, uh, a society that is based upon justice and safety and uh, equity. Uh, and so, you know, to to just land on something being legal or not legal is it does a disservice to the people involved. It does a disservice to our own understandings and capabilities to wrestle with a thing. Uh, and it's just it's not going deep enough. There's 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 so much more depth that can be had if we are willing to expand our imagination. And and really, I think that's what this curriculum is about. It's asking us to expand our imagination uh, and to create a world that that is safe for everybody. Oh, that's so that's such a good word. I I don't know why that feels so threatening for people to to say that legality does not equate morality. I mean, we've got this lengthy history in this country. We do this really well in other instances, you know, so I think the um 
the supposed debate over abortion rights is a great example where, mm. where folks who might be on one side of the aisle uh, regarding police abolition suddenly have no problem understanding uh, or, or naming that legality doesn't equal morality when it fits their specific argument or when they, th- mm. they think it fits their specific <laughs> argument. So we have the imagination. We have yeah. the capability yeah. for it. Um, but to your point, there are specific values uh, that probably relate to uh, security, that probably re- relate to whiteness, that probably relate to privilege, that when those values are touched upon, it's a lot harder to stretch our imagination uh, to include other things. Yeah. I think one thing I would add is that like, um, so much of what ends up being criminalized is about, uh, and, so, and so many of the reasons that police are called, um, is really about order. Mm, um and like trying to to keep some sort of order and not actually about like you know morality um really and like i think part of what really trips us up with with crime um is that there is some overlap uh, between some things that, that i think we would consider to be immoral and also things that are illegal um but there's actually like a ton of things that that don't fall in that category. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we we don't really want to like parse through uh, what it is that we're trying to do um, with crime, with with like a crime code. Um, I think a lot of it, you know, is not actually about how we how we make society safer, but like how we try and like control people and uh and control communities Mm. the um, mennonite church usa website has links to the curriculum and you can download it for free i love it this has been really really meaningful for me to sit and experience uh thank you for sharing this space sharing this time and um Thank you for your your wisdom and your willingness to engage in this in this particular area. And thanks for the invitation, Ben. We appreciate it. Definitely. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Next week on Ing Podcast, we sit down with author, ethicist, and professor of Christian ethics at Mercer University, Dr. David P. Gushy. Grandeur of the tradition, if I if I have captured it to any extent, is inviting um, and. The grandeur of the field is inviting. There is a way of arguing in, in the tradition of ethics. There's some better ways and some worse ways. And I try to show some ways to have a good argument. And really, in ethics, it's, it's really one long argument. And so let's have, a, let's have a good one, right? As always, we'd like to thank our guests and all who support Ing Podcast. Thank you for joining us on the journey. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review in your favorite podcasting app. And if you have something to share, send us a message at theing at menomedia.org or by leaving us a voicemail. Ing Podcast is hosted by Reverend Allison Moss and Reverend Dr. Dennis Edwards and produced by me, Ben Weidman. Views and opinions expressed on Ing Podcast are those of our hosts and guests and may not represent that of Leader Magazine or Menomedia. Ing Podcast is a production of Menomedia a nonprofit publisher that creates thoughtful Anabaptist resources to enrich faith in a complex world. To find out more, visit us online at menomedia.org. <laughs>